Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have uh, two co-founders, two brothers, you know, super, super exciting stuff. I mean, they're they're really gonna tell us about how to bring commuters together and then also how to build and scale companies. So I think that without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Jonathan Sado, and then also Robert Sado. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Alejandro. So why don't we start? So why don't we start, uh, guys, uh, with um, maybe Rob. You know, you can tell us how was life growing up in Atlanta with a family there? Uh, life growing up in Atlanta was great. Yeah, so John and I grew up in, in the suburbs right outside of Atlanta. It's actually the root of why we, we do this and we're interested in the commute in the first place. And our very first experience commuting was, was high school. Our high school was 25 miles away from where we lived. And so we loved Atlanta, but didn't particularly love driving 250, 300 miles a week back and forth to school. Got it. And John, how many how many siblings? Is it just the two of you? And who is the oldest? Just the two of us. And Rob is the older one. I think if there had been more children, our parents would have uh, not known what to do with all of us. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So then I, I hear that uh, Rob went to, to Wharton. So um, you went there for your undergrad. Is that right? That's right. I went to I went to school at, at Penn at Wharton and uh, studied business there. It was a funny experience for me. I lived on campus, so three blocks from campus. So commuting went from you know, number one on the list of things that I worried about to to dead last. But it was a great experience, a great education. And one thing that I've that I've seen, you know, because I I do guest lectures there. So I've I've been doing that for like seven years now with Professor Tyler Rye. You know, is that the network is unbelievable. So, so why is this network so powerful? It is a really powerful network. It was actually incredibly helpful for for us when we were starting the company. I think it's a, a set of folks that are that are quite like minded, and we believe a lot in in supporting each other and giving back to the the broader Wharton community. And so, when when John and I started Scoop, actually reached out to a number of my friends from school who were in the investment community who had started companies, ended up being a, a fantastic resource for us as we thought about what it meant to get started. And you also took the traditional route. You know, I see a lot of folks going into into consulting from there. So so how do you end up at Bain? So I, I think you're right. It is probably the, the second most common route coming out of Wharton, number one being you know, working in finance or investment banking. I, I was really interested in 
what it meant to help companies think through solving problems. It was something that's always been interesting to me personally. John and I were really involved in a, in a youth group, even in high school, where a lot of the work that we did locally was help this youth group understand how do we grow membership, how do we improve programming. And so in some ways, even those experiences growing up led, led me to feel like consulting was particularly interesting to do that now just at the corporate or the at the Fortune 500 level. So I moved to New York after school, worked at Bain doing strategy consulting in a bunch of different industries, uh, particular focus, though, financial services, retail and, um, and telco companies. So and there, obviously, you really gain exposure to obviously solving problems, breaking big problems into smaller problems and tackling those smaller problems. But but I believe that you really understood the power of adding value to customers and retaining customers. So so would you mind expanding on that? Sure. I think you're right in that the most valuable thing that comes out of a consulting background is this idea of how do you how do you break down problems? The fundamental unit of business in my mind is the is the is the approach to how do I I take a, a problem, break it down into component questions, think about the work that we need to do to solve that, execute that work, and then be able to communicate to a group of folks what we should do as a result to move forward. You know, all businesses is a, is a is a compilation of those types of problems, the increasing complexity, but being able to break it down in that way is super valuable. I think that's what consulting teaches you to do. The other thing it teaches you to do is really move into a, a service mindset when it comes to customers. And you think deeply about what does it mean to you know, increase value, to partner well, to communicate effectively so that you know, people with different types of experiences, different backgrounds can understand your point of view and you can quickly learn how you can support them. I think it's incredibly valuable as a as an entrepreneur to come from that background because as you think about building new products or building relationships with enterprises, a lot of what we do is try to understand their needs, break down those problems into you know, actionable solutions that we can work through from a product or a partnership perspective. Uh, it's been invaluable for us at Scoop. Got it. And and then in your case, John, you know, you you went at it with finance, but then you understood that that was not your path and and really tech was your passion. So so how did this passion come knocking to your door? Yeah, so you know, I went to school in DC and similarly to Rob was enticed by the idea of living in an urban environment, not having a car, really being in one of the, the country's, I think, greatest, greatest places to be, especially in your college years. And I had always wanted to build things. I just thought that that would be real estate. And so growing up, I really loved the idea of building buildings uh, and thinking about how to add value and create great things that make people's lives better physically. And once I ended up at Google, I realized that actually in the world that we live in today, software gives you the opportunity to do that at a scale and to a degree that's actually many, many times greater even than real estate. And so I had sort of that epiphany that I think a lot of folks do in, in, in this generation, which is I, got, I had studied finance and got to Google and said, oh no, I should have studied computer science. And so quickly tried to catch up my skills there and and make that an area that I wanted to really pursue as a career and got into product management and sort of the rest is history as far as, as far as scoop goes. So how do you go really, I mean, to, to go like, let's say to like a Google and, and you start to, to kind of like a, a transition from the, I would say like business side to more like the product side. I mean, how did you manage to do that internally? Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. And, and I'm very thankful about the fact that Google course has a ton of resources and orientation toward helping people pursue new learning new skills there's actually i'll, I'll call this person out by name there's a, a a man at google named albert wang who actually 
did the same thing and went through a transition of actually being on the people team into an engineering role. And he built this internal course at Google where he was actually teaching all kinds of people around the entire company how to write code. And it was mostly people, you know, not coming from an engineering background, but he pioneered it, he built it, and he turned it into a course. And so when I found out about that in my first year at Google, I dove in head first and was able to really take advantage of that and did really go from a sales world to a BD world where BD was a lot closer to product than on a sort of startup team at Google that brought me into that part of the development area. And then finally over to product management. And the last piece of that was just good mentorship. But I was lucky to join a team where our technical lead and our product lead both sort of put the energy behind me to help me to learn more and get that opportunity. And and one of the fun stories there is that both of them ended up becoming investors of Scoop when when we left to start the company. And then I guess uh, you know obviously from a software uh, development and then also product and and so forth. I'm sure that that you learned a lot you know during your your time at at Google, no, especially because you were there for you know almost five years. So I guess. If you had to describe like your three biggest takeaways from working at such an incredible company, I mean, it's a, it's actually super hard to get into into Google. But what were your biggest takeaways? Your three biggest takeaways from working at Google? Yeah, it's a, it, it's another great question. I think the first thing, of course, that that sort of comes at you full speed at Google is just the scale, right? Is really understanding how much impact software can have and technology can have at scale. I mean, I was working on a product where by the time we were done over the course of about a year and a half, we had gone from one country of operations for our product to 10, right? And so you just have this ability to, to bring things and bring, bring value to users in different countries and different arenas with different needs. And it's just a certain piece of scale that you get exposed to, or you get to learn from Google that really helps you understand the power of, 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 of that company and of technology. The second is, is a much more specific sort of product management learning, which is, you know, at Google, you have this sort of plethora of resources and there's so much that you can do and you have such great talent that it actually in funny way makes it even more important to learn how to prioritize. And so one of the best skills that I learned on my team at Google is just the, the need for this sort of ruthless prioritization around, we, we can build anything we want. We have all of the talent in the world, but focusing that energy on what's really going to drive impact on people's lives or the users or customers that we're trying to create for is key. And then the third part was actually, you know, something that I, I learned at Google, and I think you can probably learn at many other different companies as long as they have a vibrant culture. And that was the importance of what it meant to really understand and respect people across different capabilities and technical strengths. What I mean by that is, you know, to build great product anywhere, but especially Google, there's great engineering, there's great product managers, there's marketing, there's design leaders, there's research leaders, really understanding how to get the best out of each person's discipline and expertise, especially in a place like Google, when you're surrounded by such amazing talent is really the lesson I think that I probably most took away from that environment. And we've tried to emulate back within Scoop in terms of sort of building a culture that allows each person's expertise to shine and turn into great product outcomes. Very cool. And and Rob, you were mentioning earlier that that you guys obviously being in Atlanta, you got used to, to the commuting. And uh, obviously I'm sure that, you know, as they say, ideas take time to to incubate. It's not like an overnight type of thing that all of a sudden, you know, like it sparks. It's like over over time, maybe unconsciously, you know, you're really developing that potential solution to that problem that you have been encountering. But I want to know what was that day, uh, that that conversation that that you know you and John had that really sparked the acceleration of of really you guys being present to the fact that you could have something and that perhaps it would make sense to to bring that to life. Tell us about that day. Well, well, first, it's important to note that 
John was always the more entrepreneurial of the two of us. I was the one that had to be pulled there a little bit more. John, I think, always knew that he wanted to start a company. I, I was very happy in my in my consulting lifestyle and work. It took me a little while to actually get to a place where I felt like it, it made sense to to make this kind of investment and 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 take the leap and start a company. To your point, it starts back with our experience growing up. And when you grow up with a longer commute and you're spending 250, 300 miles a week on the road, it impacts you in a, in a lot of meaningful ways. And the things that I remember in particular that I experienced and that John experienced was, uh, I remember being really tired at the end of the day. It had a huge impact on my stress level about whether I was going to be where I was supposed to be on time. It influenced what activities I could or I couldn't participate in outside of work because I was spending so much, or outside of school rather, because I was spending so much time in the car. And so I think that really took hold for me and took hold for John early on. And when I was in school and, and at Penn or at Wharton, I didn't really think about the commute. I didn't have to do it. I lived on campus or near campus. When I moved to New York and I worked in consulting, and most consultants do a, I fly out on Monday, I'm traveling for four days, I come back on Thursday evening. For me, I was particularly lucky. Most of my clients were local and I lived in New York City. I worked in the city. I could walk or I could take the subway. It really wasn't a, I didn't really have a true commute experience at that point in time. I moved to the Bay Area about six years ago now, so late 2013. And candidly, the only reason I moved out to San Francisco is because John was living out there and I was in New York and the, he was in San Francisco. And the last time we lived in the same city, I was 18 and he was 15 and we were in Atlanta and I wanted to be closer to him. And when I came out to San Francisco, it was this interesting experience where uh, John had been commuting from San Francisco to Mountain View at Google. And that was having a pretty meaningful impact on his life. And we had talked about that quite a bit. Uh, my sister-in-law, so John's wife, was doing a master's at San Jose State in the evenings. So she was going at rush hour from San Francisco to San Jose to spend a couple hours in class to go back. I was working at Bain in San Francisco, and a lot of our clients were tech companies that were based on the peninsula or in the South Bay. And so consultants would drive back and forth quite often. And so what really happened is it was this reconnection with this experience that we had grown up with, you know, this understanding of what it felt like to commute over distance, where we sat down and said, look, this is a problem that's worth solving. If you can actually figure out a different way to help people get back and forth, not have to drive alone over longer distances, the quality of life improvement you can unlock, the impact is meaningful. And that's really what started us down the path was belief that this was a huge problem that needed solving. And that's when we started to tinker and think about different solutions and approaches for how you might be able to do that. Got it. So, John, so the, the next question that I wanted to ask you here is, um, you know, obviously now, you know, you're, you're here, the product guy, the entrepreneurial mindset. And, you know, after those conversations as well with Rob, perhaps you started to really think about what colors, you know, that idea or that problem would have on the canvas. Uh, and I'm sure that as you guys started to brainstorm and, you know, things started to become a little bit clearer, it really crystallized, you know, a moment that, that this is something that you wanted to go after. And, you know, perhaps getting that, that notice, you know, and your very nice, stable jobs with the nice paychecks that you get at Bain and also Google. So, so how was that day where you said, let's do it, let's do it? So much in the same way we sort of run the business today, Rob and I have a pretty pragmatic and methodical approach to the way we think about problem solving. I mean, even in the way you probably can hear Rob talk about how we thought about our own experiences and how we became reconnected with this 
problem that we had experienced in high school, it was it wasn't a seminal moment. There wasn't one thing that happened where we said, okay, this is real. It was sort of this really well-structured plan where it sort of started, if you think about it, from April of 2014 to December of 2014. There was a moment in April right around when we were having all these conversations about the commute where we actually ran a survey asking people about their personal and professional frustrations. And I remember we got the results of the survey and the only thing that was in the top five of both surveys was traffic. And that was sort of this this spark that sort of got us back to talking around, wait a second, we know that, we have felt that, we are seeing that in our daily lives. And that kicked off sort of work streams, I guess is the best way to describe it, where then we started to think about, well, who are the stakeholders? And well, what do the businesses feel about this? And how does this affect companies? And why haven't people been able to adapt their lifestyle to carpooling? Or rather, why hasn't carpooling been able to adapt to people's lifestyle? And it was sort of one step after another where then we had our first conversation with a prospective customer customer and we had them sort of lay out the case for why this was something they so desperately needed for their employees. And then we started doing some survey work with that customer and we started building the pilot app and we ran the pilot uh, in the fall of 2014. And once we found in the pilot that we did with, with our partner, that week one to two to three to four, there was progressive usage. People were excited. People were feeling better, happier, and enjoying this. We sort of had that moment where we said, okay, there's enough here. We really feel like we are in the world today that can solve this problem once and for all. And that's what gave us sort of that final push, I guess, to jump off the cliff, so to speak, and go and dive into starting the company together. Very cool. And was it, uh, Rob, the two of you guys giving the notice at the same time, or maybe one and then the other, or how was that? So we gave notice at roughly the same time. John and I first started thinking about you know, the specifics of Scoop and how we might approach it and due diligence on the idea uh, about nine months before we gave notice. So we did a lot of work and thinking beforehand to prepare ourselves. And then January 2015, we both left our jobs, I think, within a couple of weeks of each other. So then what happens next, Rob? So the first thing that we focused on Really, from an approach perspective, and, and, and in some ways, this ties back to my own experience at Bain was, well, what do we believe that we need to prove to say that makes sense to actually go, go out and focus our time in a dedicated way, raise capital, build a team to try and solve this problem? And so what we spent the time in advance of leaving our jobs doing was trying to validate our understanding and how we thought about the opportunity. So a lot of work on... What's the size of the market? How do people experience their commute today? What are the alternatives? Why aren't people using those alternatives? What's the business model? So by the time we left in January 2015, we felt like we had a pretty strong perspective on the key questions that we needed to address in building a company. So the first thing we did, even, even a few months before that, was we started to have conversations with uh, prospective investors. And most of those conversations came from people that were in our network or friends of friends as we tried to get feedback and sharpen our point of view. By the time we left in January, we had built a number of those relationships and immediately went into conversations around capitalizing the business so we could start to build. Got it. Got it. So then talking about, you know, really putting the the product together, John, I know that you guys had a pretty interesting story early on with, uh, with a pilot that you were putting together for Workday. Work so what happened with those algorithms? Yeah, so it, uh, this is one of those stories that I now tell and can smile and laugh through it. But for a while, we had a little bit of PTSD to to be able to tell that story. <laughs> but uh, you right. know, th this is the first really true. Oh my gosh! 
oh my God moment uh, that happened for us was the night actually of that pilot I was referencing before. It was, I think it was October of 2014. We've been, I've been trying to hack together this algorithm for for months and that's certainly not my, my expertise. So it was duct tape and glue to say the least. And we get to the first night and we're waiting to see if people are scheduling carpools and are they interested? And all of a sudden the requests start coming in and people are excited and the deadline for our matching happens and I'm ready to run the algorithm. And it basically just dies on me. Right. Nothing works at all. We've made no matches. So Rob and I are freaking out. We're really nervous. The whole thing is going to blow up. Should we Should we push it back? Should we cancel it? Maybe this isn't going to happen. And actually, it was my wife who kind of came to the rescue, as she tends to do. And she came in and said, guys, you need to settle down. Let's figure this out. I remember she grabbed a, white, a whiteboard marker. She goes to this whiteboard that we had in the room that we were working on, working in. And she goes, let's just write everybody down. And we started using Google Maps to, to sort of look everybody's addresses up and try to find ways to match them together in carpools. And it was, uh, it was a really good lesson in what it means to have grit and resilience. And frankly, it was just one of you know 100 different ups and downs that we were going to have. And it taught us a lot, actually, about what it would mean to build the product next spring after we had raised some money and as we started to hire and what it, what it really needed to look like for us to feel comfortable building an MVP now that we really were a company that was going to be able to thrive and be really successful. Very cool. Well, hopefully you invited John, your wife, to a nice date, date night no? to, uh, to say thank you for that. So, uh, so Rob, <laughs> let, me ask you, let me ask you here, uh, what ended up being the business model? I mean, the, the consulting guy, come on, tell us what ended up being that business model. Sure. So the business model ended up being Scoop partners with companies, and we predominantly focus on large employers. We also work with some smaller employers to bring Scoop to their employee base. And what we realized quickly was there was a real need at the enterprise level beyond even the experience that employees were having on a day-to-day basis. And the few things that popped up were, you know, number one, as real estate was getting more expensive, we saw a number of employers starting to put more people in per square foot in their space. And as a result, higher density, no parking to support that level of density when those buildings were originally constructed. And so employers were struggling to figure out how do they enable people to get back and forth to work if there isn't enough parking. Reducing vehicle trips became important. The second was employers were struggling with commute impact as commutes were getting longer and areas were getting more congested. So recruiting, retention, employee engagement were increasingly impacted by commute experience. And we could deliver a materially better experience than people had had driving alone. And the third was around sustainability and the importance of sustainability and reducing carbon footprint and scoop as a carpooling solution um, can actually make it possible for people to share trips and as a result, reduce their footprint. And so the business model as a result became we sell Scoop as a solution to enterprises to actually improve quality of life for their employees. So employers pay us. That's where our revenue comes from. By improving quality of life for employees, we can generate better returns on the real estate, the human capital, the sustainability investments of our customers. Got it. So then how did you go about fundraising? So we went about fundraising largely through network. So the initial folks that we spoke with, you know, I mentioned we had started to have conversations a few months before we left our respective jobs. After we, after we left in January 2015, we immediately put together presentation materials on how we thought about the market, the opportunity, how the business model would work. Uh, we put together product demo based on some of the work that John had done in the pilot to understand how we thought about what the core experience would be. We had a number of conversations over a 
say probably about a three or four week period. And one of the things we learned very quickly was, and this is true, not just in seed fundraising, but I think throughout our fundraising is the way you orchestrate that process and making sure it happens on a contained timeline and everyone moves at the same time is really important. So we set a clear starting point to when we were fundraising, a clear ending point. Uh, We raised that round concluded in March of 2015, and we were able to shift focus toward recruiting and building building the product, building the company. Because how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, we've raised a little bit over $100 million in capital. Very nice. And obviously, great folks. I see Index, even BMW, Workday. So thank God that they were not super pissed with, with the pilot. So I see that they invested. So that's awesome. But, but John, I want to I wanna ask you here. Uh, how do you, because I mean, marketplaces, they're a beast and, you know, you got the supply, you got the demand, you got retention rates, you you know, which is really what investors are going to be looking at. And that's why you needed to to do a good job to make sure that Rob, you know, was able to present this. Uh, so I guess what what has been, you know, from from building a marketplace perspective, you know, your biggest lesson today? For us, the biggest lesson is actually very specific to Scoop. I mean, we, we were fortunate that as Scoop was growing up, And over the last few years, we were sort of in the wake of quite a lot of successful marketplaces and some unsuccessful marketplaces. So there's a lot of best practices and a lot of the metrics and the way we think about growth, the way we talk about optimization. We learned a lot of that from watching others who were a step ahead of us in terms of their their chronology. For Scoop, the most interesting lesson for us on the marketplace side is actually how much commuting is an amalgam or an aggregation of really, really different local marketplaces. Right? I remember when we first started one of our earliest sort of routes, right? because so much of what we do is about commute corridors. Right, Each corridor is very different, whether you're coming from a certain origin to a certain destination. And even the same destination can look very different if you're coming from you know, the East Bay down to the South Bay or you're coming from San Francisco down to the South Bay. And we realized that you really have to understand the market dynamics in each geography. And in fact, the supply constraint in a certain geography may actually look different place to place. And what I mean by that is we had this route that when you were going to work, it was actually against traffic and the carpool lane was on the way back. And so we found, hey, we expected to have a lot more riders than drivers naturally, but actually in that first piece of, of, of that, in that first route, we had much more driver demand because they said, hey, I don't have a lot of traffic. I can use the carpool lane. And so if I can earn or reimburse a couple dollars on my way to work, that sounds like a great deal. And it was us having to really understand how do we break down each individual market and understand the both sides of the marketplace, the incentives, the pricing, the dynamics of matching, and realize that you can't just do that one time and apply it to all of the different markets. You have to really start to understand the nuance on a geographic and on an employer basis. So in order to find that liquidity, John, did you guys say, because obviously the problem here is that you want to make sure that when someone is going in, they find what they're looking for in a short period of time. The problem is that if they pull out the service and they don't find anyone, then, you know, that's that's problematic because that's going to also affect the retention. So how did you go about building that liquidity? The key to the liquidity equation for us, frankly, is how we think about partnering and really becoming part of the experience for employees at a given customer, right? At the end of the day, if you look at the reason we commute, it is because we are all going to work at a certain company. And if you look at where companies are distributed and you even think about zoning, companies are concentrated. We build we build big office parks. We big, build big buildings. And we're generally finding that people are going to these much more constrained geographic areas on the work side. But on the home side, they're very spread out. 
So for liquidity purposes, the biggest push for us has always been about the business model. It's always been about how do we marry the value that we're giving to our customers with also their employees, because it allows us to have this concentration on one side of the market. And then once you're partnering and you're going deep into that customer, how do you think about the different built-in dynamics that might drive toward driving or drive toward writing? And uh, how do you understand those quarter by quarter mechanics? Got it. And and Rob, obviously you had the the consulting experience, you had worked with a lot of teams, so you had a very good understanding of the the good, the bad, and the ugly when it came to culture, and then also about bringing on people. But I think that culture really starts with you guys, you know, with the with the founders and how that it's ingraining in the building blocks of, of, of that culture for the business. Uh, I understand as well that really doing a business with, with a sibling, you know, or with a family member or with your husband or wife is obviously a real tough one. So how did you guys really go about respecting each other and understanding how to embrace that communication between the two of you? Well, 80% of the time, it's great. I would say about 20% of the time, we, 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 it's taken a lot of iteration for us to understand our respective roles and how do we work together. And frankly, it's changed a lot from the first days to where we are today. Maybe to take a step back, John talked a little bit about his experience at Google from a people perspective. If you think about consulting and Bain and my background, at the end of the day in a consulting firm, your biggest product offering is actually your people. It's the team that you put together to actually partner with a customer, how you build those relationships to deliver value. That's what creates a lot of differentiation for a Bain versus a McKinsey, for example. And so as a result... Those companies are built understanding that the only way to succeed long-term is to be able to attract and retain fantastic talent. And there's a tremendous amount of investment there. And so when John and I started Scoop, immediately I took that experience and John took his experience and said, we're going to build an organization where we understand that our people are our greatest asset. And every time we've interviewed, and I've told candidates this and team members since the very beginning... Every time we hire someone that's fantastic, I think about it as a meaningful win in the direction of what we're trying to accomplish as a company. And so that became the foundation of how we thought about building culture and building people was being very people-centric and understanding that ultimately scoop success or failure is largely going to be driven by the team that we're able to put together. In terms of John and I working together specifically... One of the things that's different about startups and building companies than what people read in the press is what that experience actually feels like day to day. And if you look at the news or if you read TechCrunch, for example, you might see, okay, a company raises seed financing, raises A, raises B, raises C, sells for a big sum of money. And you look at it and you say, okay, well, why doesn't everybody do that? That seems like the greatest business model or, or, or way to be successful ever. But in reality, you have great days and you have terrible days and you have quarters that go really well and you have quarters that are really challenging. At the end of the day, what makes it worthwhile to build a company is one deep belief that what you're doing is important, that actually solving this problem, the impact on the world matters. And two, that the people you do it with are the people you want to go spend that time with. You want to be working hard because you share that passion and belief in what you're trying to accomplish. And for John and I as as co-founders, John, I trust implicitly. And I know at the end of the day, he'll always have my back. I'll always have his, that we care about this both deeply. And together, we know that we can be successful. 
and having that trust in a co-founder to use the foundation and build team around uh, for us has just been incredibly valuable. And it's something that I think has added a lot of strength to the company over time. Yeah, absolutely. John, and feel free to expand on, on that. You know, the, Rob, Rob captured a lot of it in, in a great way. And I think you know, we were lucky that one of our first investors, Zaw over at Signia, who's now since gone and started his own venture, really, really pushed us to invest our energy and culture and having a point of view on the culture and the type of team we wanted to build from the beginning. And I remember, and I don't think I've, I've admitted this to him before, but I remember when he and like, it was May of 2015, we had five people in the company and we hadn't even built our product yet. And he was like, you guys need to start thinking about your culture and your values and what it means to get your team in a room and say, who do we want to be? And I just remember thinking, wow, it's so early, right? What do we need to invest in culture? There's five of us. We were just trying to figure this out, but it was foundational. It was foundational for us to realize that prioritizing the company that we are building how we want to operate, who we want to be, what's going to motivate us is in many ways the most important thing to do as a founder, right? Because what you're betting on is that you can find great people who can take on each challenge, can learn as fast as you can, can really push the company and the vision that you have forward. And we've been lucky that we had that as part of our DNA from the very beginning. And as Rob said, understood that investing in great people is investing in the outcome of the business. Those are harmonious. They're not, it's not a means to an end. It really is the end in a certain way to build a great team and a great culture. Oh, for sure. It's all about people. It's all about people. So Rob, eh, for the folks that are listening, you know, perhaps for them to get a sense on on how big, you know, you guys are and, you know, like maybe there is something that you can share in terms of like maybe employees or, or any other metrics, you know, that you think could be interesting to hear? Sure. So Scoop, Scoop is about a little over four years old now. So we launched for the first time in August 2015. We're about 150 team members now, mostly in San Francisco, but also distributed in other markets that we're investing in to, to grow Scoop. Uh, pretty proud of the impact that we've had. So since our launch, our community has taken more than 8 million carpool trips. Um, we're pretty proud of the set of employers and customers we've been able to work with to make that happen. I think that gives you a little bit of a sense of the, of the scale and the team size. Got it. And and I would like to, probably this question is going to be for the two of you. I mean, this is typically a question that I ask the the guests that come on the show. And that is, I guess now, you know, uh, looking back, you know, knowing what you guys know now, because, I mean, it's a, it's been an incredible journey for, for the two of you, you know, and also with the team. Uh, if you had the opportunity to go back in time uh, and maybe, you know, to speak to your younger selves, you know, to that younger Rob that was in Bain or to that younger John that was in, in Google. Uh, and, and right before the moment, perhaps that you were about to give your notice and launch your own business, what would be that piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business and why? And maybe we start with you, John, and then Rob, feel free to, to jump in as well. So it's an excellent question. I, we've had this asked in different formats, but that's a really thoughtful way of, of positioning it. I, I have a feeling my answer might actually be similar to Rob. So Rob, I'm sorry if I'm going to steal yours, but <laughs> the biggest thing I wish I could tell myself before we left is to understand just how up and down the experience of starting and leading a company really is. And it's been interesting for me, the, where this has really crystallized for me as a founder is actually that I, so since we started Scoop, I've also become a, a parent. Uh, so I'm a father of two. Nice. And one of the things my wife and I talk about a lot is that, and we tell our friends who are just having kids, is that nothing lasts too long and nothing, uh, whether it's good or bad. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, when you have kids, there are weeks, their kids are going through changes and growth and you're, you're wondering when it's going to end. And then there are weeks where your kids are awesome and easy and listening and you say, oh, this is great. And then before you know it, it's gone. And you have to learn to love all those pieces of it and understand that nothing really lasts that long. And building a company is very similar. There are great, great highs and there are really significant lows. And you have to understand that the emotional up and down will, will get the best of you if you don't really see the forest for the trees. And honestly, a lot of that has to do with the conversation we just had, right, about culture and team and actually understanding that over time, your North Star becomes very much about the people you're working with and the vision that you're trying to accomplish. And that, you know, not nothing great lasts that long uh, before the next challenge and no challenge lasts so long before the great, the next great win. And having that perspective going into this would have been great. And I would hesitate to guess that it's one of the reasons why second and third time founders have so much success disproportionately. It's because they've understood what the, the amplitude of, of the emotional curve looks like. And it's a really, really big advantage once you've settled into that as a, as a founder and for me as a parent. Yeah, makes total sense. And Rob, what about for you? For me, the biggest learning and, and what I would tell myself if I went back is the perceived risk in stepping away from a, a larger, more stable type of job or, or employment and going to a startup is actually nowhere near as big when you're on the other side of it. And I remember that year where John and I were talking about doing something uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective and building Scoop before we left our jobs. And I agonized over that, candidly. Uh, it was really difficult for me because I was doing really well in my job and my career. And you know, what if it doesn't go well? And what if we can't accomplish what we want to? How does that impact my career, my life, uh, my financial situation? And when you're sitting from the vantage point of that level of security financially, you know, employment-wise, it can be really daunting. But frankly, as soon as we jumped over to the other side and we were building Scoop and you're in it and you feel the energy that that creates and the and just the, the rush from building team and hiring and getting to work with great people. And then when you start to hear feedback from commuters on how Scoop changes their life on a daily basis and the relationships that they've built and you know, what your energy and time investment has created for them, it totally changes your perspective. And you recognize quickly what the impact is and why you take risk and why others have taken risk before you. So if I were to go back, I would say, look, it's never, it's never as daunting. It's never as challenging on the other side as you thought it was going to be before you, you dove in. And I'd hope others that are thinking about that, you may be saying, look, I've got something I'm passionate about, but I'm nervous about what that does to my life, that they go ahead and lean into that because that's where a lot of the great innovation in the world and, and solutions to problems we face will come from. That's very, very powerful, guys. So, um, so Rob, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. So you can, you can reach us if you're interested to learn more about, about Scoop or the company. You can find more information on our website at www.takescoop.com, T-A-K-E, scoop.com. Um, you can also email us at info at takescoop.com if you'd like, uh, like to follow up. Fantastic. And any social media activity? Going can, on, do you guys you have any social media on, handles? On Twitter at, at TakeScoop. So same as Rob74, T-A-K-E-S-C-O-O-P. And that's the best way to keep track of what the company's up to. All right, fantastic. Well, now that Thanksgiving is coming up, hopefully, you know, you guys can leave Scoop a little bit, no, for the dinner while eating the turkey. But uh, in any case, it has been a, 
an honor, guys, to have you on the show. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks for having us. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.